0: You're happy to be in the house of the Lord tonight. Can you say amen? amen? God is good, is he not? Let's pray. Father, I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you would add wisdom and revelation to our hearts tonight as we gather before you, that you would speak to us sovereignly by your spirit, that you would do some perfect work of grace in us that would empower us to fight the good fight of faith, taking hold of eternal life we give you praise. We give you glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians chapter 2, verse 2. Colossians chapter 2, verse 2. Paul talks about the struggle that he's in over the churches. And Paul often speaks about the constant struggle that he endured in battling in the spirit for the churches and fighting the good fight of faith and waging the good warfare and praying. When he talks about struggling, he's he sees the reality as it is and he sees the reality as it should be and then he goes into his prayer closet to wrestle the reality as it is into the form of the reality as it should be that's really what the struggle is when we go to prayer when we go to prayer it's because we see reality as it is and we take we we take it as it is and other words, we don't we don't uh go into denial you know a lot of times when we talk about faith we're declaring the opposite of what we see but we're very aware that what we see is also real. We're not denying the reality. We're not in denial. It's not uh, like uh, words of positive, uh, you know, it's not like, like a positive thinking, the power of positive thinking. It's something deeper than that. What we're doing is we're looking at the reality as it is, and we're facing the fact, the Scripture says, that Abraham faced the fact that his wife's body was as good as dead. He faced the fact, without wavering in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, seeing that he was about 100 years old. And that Sarah's body was also as good as dead. She's about 80 years old. He faced the fact. He's like, look, we just got to face the fact. I'm old. But he faced the fact without wavering in his faith. What we tend to do is we either face the fact and waver in our faith, Or deny the fact and stand in faith. And neither one of them is correct. But when Paul talks about wrestling, he's not necessarily talking about wrestling with the devil. Not talking about what we've been talking about going back to the Davidic and trying to fight wars. But he's wrestling with the reality. He sees where people are and he sees where God wants them to be. And so he says, when I go into the prayer closet, I'm wrestling on your behalf. What am I doing? I'm getting a hold of the reality as it is, and by faith, I'm moving it into the right place. The thing that you and I need to understand is is that we need to do far more wrestling in prayer and far less wrestling in the natural. In others, we try to wrestle by sitting down and talking to one another instead of going into the prayer closet and talking to God about one another. We, We don't wrestle in prayer. Most of us don't actually wrestle in prayer. Our prayers are typically religious, you know, Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Good night. Oh, and bless mommy and daddy. You know, many grown folks been walking with the Lord for years haven't outgrown that. Still just doing little religious prayers, praying at the religious time. Let's bless the food. Let's pray over the food. Father, bless this food which we're about to receive. Do we really expect him to bless food? Isn't it funny that we, without fail, pray for the food? But we may or may not pray for our children. I mean, we religiously pray for food three times a day. But when was the last? I mean, you stop everything. I can't take a bite until somebody said grace but yet we send our kids to school every morning without laying hands. Listen, we should be praying more over our kids than over our chicken. But see, it's safe to pray over food because you actually don't expect anything to happen when you're praying over food. I mean, do you really think the chicken's going to change? Do you think when you're praying over the food, the calorie content is going to decrease? I mean, what do you expect to happen? You know what a religious prayer is? It's a prayer that you pray without expecting anything to happen out of it. You don't expect anything to change, but you're praying it because you're supposed to. doesn't change anything, but you're praying it because you're supposed to. That, my friend, is religion. Now, you know what we should do over the food? Thank God for it. Not bless it. The food don't need to be blessed. You do. And half the time what we're eating, God's looking down saying, I can't bless that. I'm sorry. Mm-mm, that is not, I mean, you know, pray over your food choices. <laughs> and then thank God for food, okay? But Paul says, when I go into my prayer closet, I'm not just saying my prayers. I want to get away from that idea of saying your prayers. As we tell kids, did you say your prayers? Did you say your prayers? Because all children know how to do is say prayers. It's repetition. Repeat after me. And that's what you did when you first came to Jesus, wasn't it? Somebody said, repeat after me. And you said, Father, Father, come into my life. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sin. Forgive me of my sin. Jesus, Jesus. Isn't that what your children do? I, every night, Alethea and I, we pray for mommy. Although she doesn't know how to pray yet, but she knows how to Repeat. So I'm rocking her last night. I was rocking her to sleep. She said, Tell me a story. So I said, okay, so I'm rocking her and I'm telling her a story. I'm telling her a story. And then she goes, Wait, we have to pray for mommy. <laughs> I said, You're right. And so I've said a prayer for mommy. Then I said, Can you say a prayer for mommy? Silence. I said, Alathea, can you can you pray for mommy? Silence. I said, say Jesus, Jesus. <laughs> Bless mommy. Bless mommy. I know how to repeat what I've heard, but I'm a baby. So I don't actually know how to talk to the father out of my own heart and actually expect that he's going to hear what I'm saying and he's going to actually do something about what I'm saying. Paul said, when I go into the prayer closet, I'm not saying prayers. I'm struggling. He said in Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you. And for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not met me personally, I'm struggling. With the reality that you're in. I'm struggling with the situation you're in. Paul says, I want you to know that you're not struggling and I'm not struggling. That when you struggle, I struggle. And even if you're not struggling, some of you, the problem is you've forgotten how to struggle. You're struggling outside of the prayer closet, but not inside the prayer closet. You should be struggling inside of the prayer closet and then walk out in peace. Because Paul said, don't be anxious about anything, but in all things, through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to god and then the peace of god which passes all understanding guards your heart i should be walking around in the midst of the worst trial i'm ever going through before in my life looking like everything's fine but i go into the prayer closet. oh lord all of my anxiety is in prayer i'm taking it all to jesus and and i don't leave until i lay it at the feet of jesus and i'm wrestling with reality I'm grabbing a hold of my situation in the state that it's in, and I'm wrestling with it, and I'm commanding it to move in the name of Jesus. I'm believing that my faith is the victory that overcomes the world, and so by faith I'm commanding it to move. I was praying a couple of weeks ago, and I was saying, Lord, this is so heavy on me. I was praying about a situation, and I said, Lord, it's so heavy on me. And the Lord spoke to me and said, how did it get above you? I said, what? He said, nothing can be heavy on you unless it's above you. How did it get above you? Because I seated you above it. I said, oh, that helps. It, nothing can be heavy on you that you don't allow to climb up your back and sit on top of your head. And sometimes we do that. As spiritual as we may be, sometimes we allow things to climb up our leg. You know how my daughter sometimes she'll grab my leg and climb up my leg. We allow things to climb up our leg, climb up our back, and sit on our head and weigh us down. And then we go, Lord, it's weighing me down. And he says, well, get back into your place. Come back up above it. I seated you far above it. I seated you at my right hand in Christ, far above all power and principality and dominion and might. And sometimes we have to wrestle to move ourselves back to our place And to move that situation back to its place. So Paul says, I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you. I want you to know the power of prayer. There is nothing that your faith cannot move. We really don't believe that. That's the problem. We really don't believe that. There's nothing that your faith cannot move. You need to begin to believe that if you would just get into your closet and pray about it. I'm not talking about really your closet, but your secret place, wherever that is. If you would take the time to just begin to pray about it and to pray. And what I do is I pray till I come to faith. See, I, you know, I could tell you I'm a man of faith. That would actually not be true. It'd be a lie. I'm more full of unbelief than anybody else in this room. But the difference is I pray till I believe. That's why Paul said, fight the good fight of faith. What we're fighting for is faith. We're fighting to believe. And I, whenever I start out in prayer and I sense the presence of unbelief, and if I don't sense it, I ask God to reveal it because unbelief is always there. In other words, unless, I, if, I'm, if I'm anything but fully confident that God, and fully aware of what God is doing and fully confident in the fact that he is doing it, I'm in unbelief. That is, if you wake up in the morning and you're not, fully confident in what God is doing and that he is doing it, you wake up in unbelief. Anything other than confidence in what God is doing, awareness of what God is doing, and the ability to speak in agreement with it is unbelief. Unbelief. Fear comes from unbelief. Unbelief. So I have to wrestle my heart into the place of faith. I want to be conscious when unbelief is creeping at my door, knocking at my door. Unbelief is our default setting. So you got to go into system preferences. you got to change your default setting to faith. You ever had a, a setting on your computer that kept switching back to something that you didn't want? You know, I don't like Yahoo's search engine, but for some reason my iPad likes to switch to the Yahoo search engine, and i got to go back into settings and find the browser, and switch the default browser back to Google, and save it. And then all of a sudden, a few weeks later, I open up my browser, and here comes Yahoo again. I say, what? The devil is a liar. (laughs) You wake up in the morning, and you're back in unbelief. You've got to figure out how to get back into your settings and switch it back to faith. But there comes a time when we just accept it. Paul says, I don't accept it. I'm struggling. I'm wrestling. So Paul says, I want you to know how much I'm wrestling for you, how much I'm struggling for you and for those at Laodicea. And he says, verse two, let me tell you why I'm struggling. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love. I want to focus on the first, encouraged in heart. Paul says, why am I struggling? My first purpose is I want you to be encouraged in heart, encouraged in heart, And he says, this is why I want you to be encouraged in heart so that you may have the full riches of complete understanding. The result of you being encouraged in heart is so that you may have the complete riches, the full riches of complete understanding so that you may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I want you to be encouraged in heart. And the result is you have understanding. The heart is the locus of understanding. Understanding takes place in the heart. In when you are encouraged in heart, your heart opens up to the full riches of complete understanding. I want you to get this tonight. Nine times the New Testament associates the heart with understanding. Nine times. Now, first of all, we need to understand that the the heart is typically a Hebrew idiom for the seat of the emotions. When the Bible is talking about the heart, it's talking about the emotions. And we're getting into the realm of the feelings. Your heart is where your feelings take place. You know, when my wife says, you don't understand me. She's not talking about my brain because my brain might even be able to articulate what she's saying. No, I understand perfectly what you're saying. No, 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 no. But you don't understand me. She's talking about the heart. What she's saying is, but you don't feel me, though. (laughs) You feel me? The term heart appears in Scripture over 700 times. 740-something times the term heart appears. The Bible talks about the heart in more than 700 locations. Isn't that interesting? Compare it to 156 or 154 references to the mind. The mind is spoken of about 154 times. The heart about 740 times. So the Bible talks about the heart almost five times as many times as it talks about the mind. In the New Testament, the heart is spoken of 156 times in the New Testament. The heart is spoken of 156 times in the New Testament compared to 74 mentions of the mind. So twice as much, twice as many references to the heart in the New Testament as there are to the mind. Now, at first glance, it could be argued that from a biblical perspective, the heart is at least twice as important as the mind. I think a better explanation is that the heart is the place where everything that happens in the mind manifests itself. Everything that happens in the mind manifests itself in the heart. Even science proves that. Your emotions, your feelings, they are all the responses to your thoughts. You think, and then you feel, in that order. A lot of times you think you think think it because you feel it. Well, I felt this when she walked into the room, so I think she doesn't like me. (laughs) I felt funny when I was around her, so I think. No, 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 no. When you were around her, you thought she didn't like you, so you felt funny. And then you thought she didn't like you again. Science proves that emotion, and here's the key that you need to understand, emotion or feeling is the response to thought, but it is the response to micro-interpretive thought, not to develop thought. Oh. Meaning, what you feel is not based on what you think through, it's based on what you think in a flash. I walk by Joseph, and something's not right, and my mind has a thought. And it's microinterpretive, meaning you don't actually think it. You think it so quickly, you don't even know you thought it. Your brain, your mind, interprets some gesture of Joseph, and the interpretation is, he's mad at you. And it sends that information to your limbic system, which sends an emotional response that says, I feel rejected. So what, what am I feeling? And what we like to say when people say, well, what you're feeling is not real. You know, I, I, I just had something in my hair. That's why I did this when you walked by. I wasn't brushing you off or saying, Psh, forget you. You say, oh, so then I'm crazy. We love throwing that one out. Oh, so I'm crazy, huh? So then I just, I'm out of my mind, huh? No, you just misread a signal. I mean, it happens all the time. Your friend comes up behind you and goes, Boo! And you go, ah! When you heard the boo, your brain said danger, sent information to your emotions that said prepare yourself for battle, and you screamed and freaked out. Your emotions said attack. But you read that one wrong. The intention of your friend was not violent. It was comedic. We all read things wrong. It doesn't mean we're crazy. It just means the emotions are the response of microinterpretive thought, of thin slicing. It, emotion is the response to the type of thought that happens so fast that you don't even know that you're thinking it. But it started in your mind. It started with an interpretation, and it led to an emotion. Behind every emotion is an interpretation. Without the interpretation, you wouldn't have the emotion. You think it's intuition like some subliminal thing. No, you had a thought and then you had a feeling. you got to get this in your brain because that means that if you can learn to change your thoughts, you can change your feelings. We're going somewhere tonight. The heart is the place where understanding takes place. But you got to be careful what you understand. Because what you understand, you're in danger of being established in. Remember in Proverbs 24, it says through wisdom, the house is built through understanding. It's established when you begin to understand. See, there's certain things I don't allow myself to understand. Certain things start to make sense, start to feel right. And I judge it right there at the door and say, I'm not going to allow that to feel right because that ain't right. If I allow it to feel right, I'm in danger of being established in it. Because once you feel it, don't you just feel like it's right? I mean, when you feel it's right, even if somebody tries to convince you it's right and their logic is irrefutable, you still won't accept it. Why? Because I feel it. We are such an emotion-driven culture. We're driven by the heart, not by the mind. What we don't realize is that the heart is driven by the mind. Stick with me. Understanding happens in the heart. Look at Matthew 13, 15. Jesus is quoting the prophet, and he says, he's quoting the prophet uh, Isaiah. He says, for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I should heal them. You hear that? Understand with their heart. Verse 19 of chapter 13, Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is talking about the parable of the sower. And he says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in the heart. This is what was sown along the path. When they hear it but don't understand it, the evil one snatches away what was sown in the heart. Understanding didn't occur, so the word is just sitting on top of the heart. Just like seed scattered on a path. It's sitting on top of the path. And the birds just swoop down and grab it and take away. When you hear the word of the kingdom. But it just sits on top of the heart. It doesn't sink down deep in the heart. Understanding doesn't occur. And it just sits on the heart. You heard the same word that set the person next to you free. The difference is they understood it. You didn't. Because they understood it. It went so deep in the heart that the enemy couldn't touch it. You didn't understand it. So it sat on top of your heart. As soon as you walked out of the room. The enemy went thank you. She so say, why? Now, I know, I know what you're thinking, right? That's not fair. He didn't understand it. That's not his fault that he didn't understand it. The preacher should have been clearer. Probably because the preacher couldn't preach. Didn't have any good communication skills. Have you ever shared something with somebody that was so clear and so logical and so simple and so irrefutable that anyone, even a little child, could understand it, but yet they looked at you and said, I have no idea what you're talking about. You ever had that experience? Isn't that just frustrating? Doesn't it just frustrate the mess out of you? Doesn't it want you doesn't make you want to just pull out your hair. You know what I'm talking? If you're married, you know what I'm talking about. It happens to married couples all the time. And both part I'm not talking about about my wife. It's happened to her towards me too. More so. And you know what tends to happen is later when you calm down, you go back to each other and say, you know, now I understand exactly what you, you know, it just makes so much sense now. I couldn't see it when you, why couldn't I see it? What prevents understanding? Look at Mark chapter 8, verse 17. Mark chapter 8, verse 17. Jesus loves to throw stuff out to his disciples. He said, beware the yeast of the Pharisee. He just let that one marinate, and the disciple said, "You got any idea what he's talking about? <laughs> nah, man. I was hoping you knew." I said, "Why don't we ask Peter? What do you think he's talking about?" And Peter goes, "I think it's because we forgot to bring the bread." <laughs> and the other one said, "I think that's it. <laughs> it's because we ain't got the bread." Who forgot the bread? James, did you forget to bring the wonder bread? Now the Lord's talking about the yeast of the Pharisees is because you didn't bring the bread. Look at verse 17. Jesus, aware of this, now now watch this. They're saying this in secret. They don't want Jesus to hear this foolishness, right? (laughs) Typically, when we're talking foolishness, we're hoping the Lord doesn't hear it. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? This is, this is like the most comical passage in the whole Bible. You know, we're looking on from the outside and we're thinking, Dude, how, rede- how ignorant can these disciples be? That doesn't make no sense, right? He says, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? You hear what Jesus is saying? When the heart hardens, understanding is impossible. Now, see, we can read it from the outside looking in, but these disciples walked with him every day. He taught them all day long. They lived in the house with him, and he says, there's there's no way you should not understand what I'm saying to you at this point. After all these years of me talking to you, it should be perfectly clear. Are you still so dull? Have your hearts Hardened. The only thing that prevents understanding is the hardness of heart. Ephesians 4.18. They are darkened in their understanding. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance in them due to the hardness of their heart. You see that? They're darkened in their understanding. Why? Because their hearts are hard darkened in their understanding due to the hardness of their heart. When your heart hardens, it closes itself up. You can no longer understand. Understanding is impossible. And then Paul says, once again, Colossians 2.2, 2, my purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart, So that they might have the full riches of complete understanding. So when the heart is hardened, understanding is impossible. When the heart is encouraged, the full riches of complete understanding are available. Isn't that powerful? That the only thing that has to listen, husbands, to understand your wife, you got to soften your heart. You think it's because she's a poor communicator. Maybe. But that's not the problem. Behind every broken relationship. Behind every church split. Behind every divorce. There's a hardened heart. At least one. Most of the time at least two. You remember when the Pharisees asked Jesus, they said, can we divorce our wives for any reason whatsoever? Is it lawful? Isn't it okay for us to divorce our wives for any reason whatsoever? And Jesus said, no, man, that's crazy. From the beginning, the creator created the male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Therefore, what God has put together, let not man separate. And they said, but wait a minute. Moses said that if we want to divorce our wife, just write her a letter of divorce. It was that easy. You didn't even have to go to the court. He said, what? What did you say? Pen and paper. We're divorced. Bam. That easy. And when a man divorced his wife in the ancient world, he left her with nothing. She had no means of providing for herself. Most women who were divorced by their husbands became prostitutes. It was the only way of eating. So the Pharisees said, Moses said this was cool. And Jesus says, Moses gave you that because of the hardness of your hearts. See that? Moses wrote, Moses gave you that because of the hardness of your hearts. Not because it's right, but because your hearts are so hard that you'd probably treat your wives worse if you kept her than if you let her go. Moses did it as an act of mercy to your wives. But that's not God's intention. That's not His plan. Now I'm giving you something more than Moses because Moses couldn't soften your heart, but I can soften your heart. Now I'm giving you God's intention, and His intention is don't leave your wife. I'm going to soften your heart. You see? You hearing me tonight? It's the hardness of heart. If understanding happens in the heart, then reasoning with someone's mind to get them to understand or agree with with what you're saying is futile. You can't convince the mind when the heart is hardened against understanding. That's why arguing, it doesn't make any sense. When you're just arguing and arguing and both of you are upset and upset, your heart's hardened so long ago, there are no spoils. You can't win. But you keep arguing and arguing and arguing and yelling and yelling and yelling and Two hardened hearts that are just slamming against one another till one of them breaks. That's all. There's only one hope, and the hope is a softening of your heart. That is, we must be jealous to guard our hearts against hardening. We must know the condition of our hearts at all times. When we sense a little bit of hardness in our hearts, we gotta soften it. We gotta make a decision. I'm not going to allow my heart to get hard. I'm not going to allow my heart to harden, to stiffen. I'm not going to do it. And you know when your heart is hard because you can't understand. Anytime you find yourself standing outside of the place of understanding, your heart is hard. If you can't understand what your wife is saying to you, your heart is hard. It's not because what she's saying to you is ridiculous, like you'd like to think. It's because your heart is hard. Are you hearing me tonight? you got to allow that heart to soften. And Paul says the problem is not that you can't understand your spouses. You can't understand God. He said there in Ephesians 4.18, hardness of heart alienated you from the life of God, darkened your understanding, and made you ignorant. That's some strong language. If I let my heart harden towards my wife, it'll darken my understanding and alienate me from the life of God and make me ignorant. In other words, a hardened heart is a a hardened heart. I let it harden against my wife and I find suddenly I can't understand what God's doing in my life. God wants to take us beyond this lack of understanding. This, You know, we've been saying for so long that he moves in mysterious ways and we don't know what he's doing. And and we think that's the way we're supposed to live our lives. But Paul says, no, you're supposed to live with the full riches of complete understanding. Paul prayed in Philippians 1 that he would fill us with the knowledge of his will, with all wisdom and spiritual understanding. We're supposed to have knowledge. We're not in the age of ignorance anymore. We're in the age of revelation. And God wants to show us things. Amos said it in Amos chapter 3. He said, Surely the Lord will do nothing without first revealing it to his servants, the prophets. We are a prophetic people. God prophesied. The the prophet... the prophet Joel prophesied in 228 that in the last days, God would pour out his spirit on all flesh and that our sons and daughters would prophesy. When he talks about the age of prophecy, he's talking about this age. And we're living in a day and age in which God is revealing secret things. Things have been hidden from ages and generations. He said to his disciples, blessed are your eyes, which see what you see, and blessed are your ears, which hear what you hear. For many prophets and kings long to see what you see and hear what you hear, but they didn't see it and they didn't hear it. The things that were hidden from past stages are being revealed to you but we're living in greater ignorance than the prophets of old when we're supposed to have everything they had and more okay so my heart is hard what do i do now how do i soften my heart do i pound it do i beat it do i repent well, this is where we can help one another. Paul gives us the clue there in Colossians 2.2. 2. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart so that they may have. Please check on my baby. If she's hurt, let me know. It's the hardest thing when you're a parent. You know, you hear your child screaming. Can't think about the message anymore because you hear a child crying over there. It's like, oh, Lord. Hope they're not telling me. Just not telling me. Um, uh, her her mommy is in, in Thailand, and uh, and uh, me and Marcel. So it's probably just that she's missing her mommy. Her mommy and and uh, she needs her daddy. So I'm gonna have to wrap this up. Encouragement. <laughs> Sorry. Encouragement. Your heart, when your heart is encouraged, it opens to the, com- the full riches of complete understanding. Say, well, how do? She's okay? She's not hurt? Okay. All right, cool. So when, <laughs> when your heart is encouraged, it opens up to the full riches of complete understanding. How do you encourage the heart? How do you encourage the heart? I was thinking about this guy Barnabas. Bar-Nabas. The word bar means son. Nabas means encouragement son of encouragement. His real name was Joseph, but the disciples named him son of encouragement. They changed his name to Barnabas. Why? Because he went around encouraging everybody. You ever known somebody that was just infectiously encouraging? I mean, just so encouraging. You couldn't help but be encouraged in that person's presence. Like, I mean, you might have come into their presence in your lowest of low, but you walk out in your highest of high. So encouraging that it almost makes you mad sometimes. It's like you always got a word of encouragement. You won't just, because sometimes I just want to be mad. But you won't let me be mad. You know, you just pull me up out of the pit, even when I want to linger there for a little while. You just don't let me stay there. And I love you for it, but I also can't, I just hate you for it. You know, it makes me mad, but I need it. I so need those Barnabas people in my life. You know, we need to multiply the ministry of Barnabas in our midst. Do you know what encouragement is? The word in the Greek is parakaleo. Parakaleo. Para para means alongside. Kaleo means to call or to speak. Parakaleo is always directional. Encouragement, get this, encouragement is always directional. It's not just making somebody feel better when they feel down. Encouragement is always directional. It means that you're walking alongside someone and speaking words that move them towards their destination. It means that you see somebody who should be over there, but they're over here. And you come alongside them and you put your arm around them and you talk to them and you talk them all the way over there to where they need to be. Are there people in your life who, w- who could say of you, if it weren't for you, I'd still be over there? If there are people in your life who could say that of you, then you're an encourager. If there's somebody in your life who might be able to say of you, if it wasn't for you, I would have quit school. But you encouraged me, and now I finished. If there's somebody in your life who could say, if it wasn't for you, I would have quit my marriage. But you encouraged me, and I'm seeing it through. If there's somebody in your life who could say, if it wasn't for you, I would have quit my diet plan. If it wasn't for you, I would have quit my job. If it wasn't for you, I would have stayed in that job when God opened a door for a better job. If it wasn't for you, if it wasn't for you, if it wasn't for you, is there anybody in your life who could say if it wasn't for you? If you're a mover, you move people from point A to point B, you're an encourager. Is there anybody who could say if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have come to that church? If there is there anybody who could say of you, if it wasn't for you, I would have left that church. Is there anybody who could say of you, if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have this girlfriend. I wouldn't have this wife. If it wasn't for you, if it wasn't for you. In order to be an encouragement, you've got to have vision for other people. You see, we're so busy getting vision for ourselves and wallowing in our lack of self-vision that we don't have time to see where anybody else needs to be. I'm just so busy trying to see where I need to be. And when I look around, when I talk to you, I'm asking you, where do you think I should be? Because I'm lost. In order to be an encourager, you've got to forget about where you are for a second and look around and see where people need to be. You know, Barnabas did that so many times. First of all, this guy, Saul, Saul of Tarsus, he was a Christian killer. And he was on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. And Jesus appeared to him in a vision so bright that it blinded him, knocked him off his beast, spoke to him, I'm Jesus whom you persecute. Three days he was blind. Ananias, not Ananias, shows up, lays hands on him, scales fall from his eyes he can see, and he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Now he's an outcast in both worlds. Christians still don't want to talk to him because it might be a trap. Welcome. Oh, so this is where you meet. Come on in, guys. Take them all. The Jews don't want anything. Jews want to kill him now because he's a traitor. And Barnabas, son of encouragement, comes and finds where he is and says, Come with me, Saul. And he takes him to the brothers, and he says, Listen, we need to embrace this guy. Jesus appeared to him on the road. I'm telling you, he's the real deal. And they were like, No, man, he killed my homie. He said, yeah, that was before Jesus appeared to him. Now embrace him. Everybody hug him. Barnabas saw him on the outside and said, he needs to be on the inside. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Come on, Saul. And he brought him to the inside. Later on, they heard about a revival that was going on in a city called Antioch where there were some Hellenistic Greek-speaking Jews who tried a novel idea. They went out into the streets and started preaching the gospel to everybody. Nobody did that before them. They always went to the synagogue where the Jews were, and they preached the gospel in the synagogue. These guys, they said, let's go to to Safeway. Let's start a revival in the parking lot of Safeway. And they, they planted this big church in Antioch. But the apostles heard of it, and they said, what they're doing is strange. Barnabas, go check it out. If it's the real deal, encourage them. If not, shut it down. Barnabas goes out there, and he sees the grace of God, and he encourages them. Isn't that that strange that Barnabas would encourage them? Hmm, I wonder. He encourages them, and as he encourages them, they're strengthened and, and strengthened in their faith. But then he says, you know what? You guys need a little bit more leadership here. I know a guy named Saul of Tarsus. Nine years ago, he gave his life to Christ. We had to get him out of the city before the Jews killed him. But he's been in his hometown, Tarsus, for nine years, and he's not doing much. He's over here, he needs to be over here. So he goes all the way to the Tarsus and he finds Saul and he says, So what have you been up to? He says, Man, I'm preaching the gospel everywhere. I'm going to every synagogue I know and preaching the gospel. He says, Well, how much fruit are you bearing? Well, not really any. He says, So you've been preaching for nine years and there's no fruit. That's right. He says That's because you need a community around you. You can't be a lone ranger out there preaching the gospel by yourself. I don't care how great of an apostle you are. It's not about how great or how powerful or how anointed you are. It's about the community that God places you in. And I've got just the community for you. It's all the way over here in Antioch. It's a powerful church. You watch. You get planted in that church. Your fruitfulness is going to explode. And he convinced Saul, put his arm around him, and walked him from Tarsus all the way to Antioch. And then when he got him to Antioch, he introduced him to the body and said, Hey, hey, listen, folks, this guy Saul, you need to accept him into your leadership team. They put him on the leadership team along with six other prophets and teachers, or five other prophets and teachers, seven total including Barnabas and Saul. And now the church is stronger. You see? Barnabas was constantly taking people from point A to point B, constantly saying, you know, you do this well. You know what? All you need is a little shift here, and you would be fruitful. Listen, the ministry of encouragement, what it does is it gives people hope. Because when your heart is hardened, the reason it's hardened is because you don't think there's any hope. You feel like all hope is gone. The heart hardens around pain. It becomes hard because it's been stabbed so many times. It says, you're not stabbing me again. It becomes hard because it's been rejected and abandoned so many times because it's been betrayed so many times. It hardens and says, you're not doing, I'm not going to let anybody do that to me again. And as soon as I get to that place where I make statements like that, I'm not letting anybody do that to me again. My heart is hard. It's a statement. I'm verbally saying, I'm going to Harden my heart so stiff that you can reject me all you want. It's just going to bounce off me. But it also means you can love me all you want and that's going to bounce off me too. What opens it up is encouragement. Encouragement that moves you towards a destination. And you know the, po- the most powerful way to encourage someone is prophecy. Paul said in First Corinthians chapter fourteen, verse three: "He who prophesies speaks unto men, unto edification, exhortation, and encouragement." Every believer should be asking the Lord for the gift of prophecy. Every believer. Every believer should be praying for the gift of prophecy. The Bible commands it. Do you know that? Do you know that it's a sin not to ask God for the gift of prophecy? Just read 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1. Follow after love and desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. Did you hear that? It's a command. Follow after love and And desire spiritual gifts. Do you desire spiritual gifts? Or are you too wrapped up in what you need to desire the anointing to bless others? He said desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. Do you speak in tongues? There's a double command. If you speak in tongues, there's a double command for you to pray for prophecy. Because he said a few verses down. Therefore, if any man speaks in a tongue, let him pray that he might interpret. He goes on to say, I'd have you all to speak with tongues, but I'd rather that you all prophesy. Every believer should prophesy. What does it mean to prophesy? It means to speak the word of the Lord. Does it have to be in King James English? No. <laughs> yea, the Lord saith unto thee, I shalt thou and thou shalt thee, saith the Lord. That's not what prophecy is. Prophecy is not a style. You know what prophecy is? When you're saying something that came from God to somebody who needs to hear it. It's also not when you're making something up. (laughs) Like those prophets that say obvious stuff. Ah, the Lord just dropped this in my spirit. You got some tattoos. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's not what prophecy is you know Pastor Aaron Lee from New Philadelphia Church in Seoul she's the husband of Pastor Christian Lee her and, her and Pastor Christian they pastor New Philadelphia Church in Seoul she was talking to one of her friends the other day about a couple weeks ago we, while we were out there she said yeah you know I was talking to one of my friends and and my friend said, I want to learn to prophesy like you prophesy. And she said, You know what? I don't even really prophesy that good. I'm praying for more. And her friend said, Well, what do you mean more? She said, You know, like, I want to be able to just be talking to people and say, You know, like, uh, the Lord just showed me you got two brothers, and one of them's named Michael. And her friend goes, I do. <laughs> she goes, Come on, quit playing. She goes, No, seriously. I got two brothers one of them is named Michael. <laughs> How'd you know that? <laughs> the thing you've got to realize is the Holy Spirit lives in you. And he knows everything. The Holy Spirit lives in you. And he knows everything. And he wants to share that knowledge with you. Prophecy will happen when you activate your faith to begin to believe God to speak through you beyond your understanding and without your permission. Prophecy will happen. What happened there? Aaron prophesied to that young lady. What what prophecy is, is when God speaks through you. God spoke through her without her knowledge and without her permission. God didn't come down and say, Aaron, is it okay with you if I use your mouth for a second? She didn't even know it was prophetic. She had just been asking the Lord, give me knowledge of things that go beyond my understanding. And God answered the prayer without her even knowing it. You know what happens is when you begin to pray and ask God for the gift of prophecy and for the spirit of prophecy to rest upon you, everyday normal conversations turn prophetic. You won't even know. But somebody was, say, well, hold on. God is talking to me right now. What do you mean, God? No, I'm talking to you right now. No, but God is talking through you. You won't even know it. You just got to be careful at that point not to get creative. Because you can go from the spirit to the flesh real quick. So, you know, we've got this prophetic movement now. And, you know, anyway, I won't go there. But we, we can go so far to where everyone we meet has a pan-galactic ministry. You know? You're going to minister all over the galaxy. <laughs> you know, the Lord says you will travel to the ends of the universe with the gospel. Pretty soon, everybody we meet is going to be wealthy and you're going to have a child. That's not what it's all about. Pray for it and then trust God to do it. Don't get creative. And here's some rules for prophecy. No direction, no correction, no dates, and no mates. No direction. I don't want any of you going around saying, the Lord told me you have to move to Colorado. That's not your place. No direction, no directive words. The Lord told me you're supposed to marry her. No mates. And no dates. The Lord said on January 3rd, this is going to happen to you. I don't want to hear none of that. (laughs) And no correction. The Lord rebukes you because you did this. The Lord sees what you did. (laughs) That's not your place. You know what you can do? You can build up, which is to edify. Mm -hmm. You can stir up, which is to exhort. You know, know, exhortation is awesome because it stirs people up. You know? My brother does that real good. You know, we'll be in the office, and one of the staff members will be like, man, I'm tired. And my brother will go, come on, dog, come on, dog, come on, dog, come on, dog. You know, and everybody just gets stirred up, you know. I guess that didn't work on you, but it works on the staff. (laughs) Come on, dog. We're going to get a shirt that says, come on, dog. Anyway. No direction, no correction, no dates, and no mates. But you know what you can do? You can build up. You can stir up, and you can encourage. You can encourage. And it's so simple. You see somebody who's about to quit school, come sit down with them. Encourage their hearts. You know how you encourage people? See, the thing is, we can't see the glory that's on our own lives. There's not a one of us in this room that knows how much glory is on our lives. We don't know it. You look at people and think, well, they've got to know. they got it like that. No, they don't. They don't know it. You know, I was at a pastor's gathering this last week, and I was looking around the room, and there was all these respected pastors there in the room, and I was looking. I was like, Oh, that guy. Ooh, I got to talk to him. Ooh, that guy, man. Ooh, he's awesome, you know. Well, well, that guy over there, I got to talk to this guy. Ooh, and I was thinking, I I just want to go shake their hand and just say it's a pleasure to see you here. God bless you, sir. You know, I respect you. You know, I just want to shake their hand, you know, not thinking that people were looking at me like that in the room. It didn't, dawn, it didn't cross my mind. But after it was over, the very people that I said, I need to go talk to that guy, came to me. Pastor Benjamin, it's so good to see you here. Man, God bless you. I'm so honored that you're here. People I didn't even know. Oh, I've heard so much about you. I'm like, you what? 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 You can't see the glory that's on your own life. Somebody has to tell you. Moses goes up to the mountain, comes down, his face is glowing, and the people said, would you put a sheet over your head? He said, Why? So, Because you're glowing. I am. The people saw it. He didn't see it. You can be radiating the glory of God, and everyone around you see it, but you don't see it. And at the very moment where you're radiating the glory of God, you want to quit. All it takes is for one person to come and say, wait, wait, wait. you want to quit right now? It just must mean that you can't see the glory that's coming off of your life. You can't see how powerful you are. Don't you realize when you walk in the room what happens? Don't you realize what other people see when they see you? You need to know. You know what? You can let someone on in on what God is doing in and through their life. You can let someone in on the anointing that rests on their life, on the glory. That is encouragement. That's what encouragement is. You're hearing me. And in doing so, if we begin to encourage, you know what happens? If I encourage Isaiah that way, the hopelessness begins to dissipate. The heart begins to soften, and it begins to open. And all of a sudden, he says, this is all starting to make sense. Don't you love those moments where stuff starts clicking? That's starting to make sense. You know what happened? Your heart just softened. It wasn't because you weren't smart enough to understand it. You're far smarter than you think. Your brains, your minds can do so much more than you think they can. It's because your heart was hard. You let that heart soften, let it open up. All of a sudden, understanding comes flowing in. And it says that they may have the complete riches, the full riches of complete understanding, that they may know the mystery of God. God wants you to know the mystery of God. Amen. Namely, Christ, in, in whom are hidden all of the riches, all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge We haven't even gotten to the treasures of wisdom and knowledge yet. That's after understanding. We're just now opening up our hearts to understand some basic stuff. God wants to get us to the treasure. But in order to do that, he's got to establish us in the place of understanding. And in order to do that, he's got to establish us in the place of encouragement. And he wants to use all of us to do that for each other. Let's pray.